Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Atchison Clare, a scholar at Purdue University. Dr. Atchison Clare, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we get started, can you give your full introduction so I don't I don't mess it up? Sure. Yeah, my name is Chris Atchison Clare. I, I often publish under Chris Atchison alone. So if you're looking for me online, um, you can just use that name. But I'm at Purdue University. And there I direct a center called the Center for Intercultural Learning, Mentorship, Assessment, and Research, which we call SOMAR because that is too much of a mouthful to say over and over. Um, and yeah, that's that's me. And the paper which we will be discussing today was published in 2016 in the Modern Language Journal, and it's named The Burnout Spiral, The Emotion Labor of Five Rural U.S. Foreign Language Teachers one of the best papers by far that I've read this year, and um, oh, nice. <laughs> I don't want to fanboy out here, but it's uh, it's one of those papers where after you read it, I think your next writing session is better. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of the podcast, but it kind of started out where I was lost in citations and I was reading all of these papers a few years ago. And at that time, I, I think I was researching like the Yerkes-Dodson principle and effects of anxiety, and I was just buried under these papers. And I read a paper that synthesized, I don't know, 120 years of, of research really wow. well. And it was one of those things where I just said, you know, I got to reach out to this person. It was, it was a professor in Norway, and I sent him an email, and he responded back. And that's kind of, I got that rush from from getting that connection to the person. And I, I felt the same thing. I thought this paper was so good. And, um, I didn't know the chances of you coming on the podcast, but, um, wow, great paper. I I really highly recommend people, people checking it out. And again, for people that are listening, uh, what time is it there? Your time? It is (laughs) 5am. That's awesome. I mean, it's awesome for you, I guess, that you're a successful person. I mean, when I even looked at the, so I have this this app on my phone where I'm looking at different time zones. If I see five fifteen, I get anxiety. I just, I was like, I. Sh- uh. So you're 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 a morning person. Well, I I'm an introvert. I like being awake when no one else is, but mm. I also have a milk cow, and so I get up early to milk the cow. I saw that. Okay, so so where are you currently? Are you in Indiana or Georgia? Yes, I'm in Indiana. Um, and so we moved up here about six years ago, and I still go back and forth quite a bit because my parents have a farm and they they need some help. So I'm actually going to spend most of March in Georgia, but I'm most of the time in Indiana. Um, we live about uh, about half an hour from the university, kind of out in the country, and we have a little hobby farm. So draft horses and mules and chickens and sheep and cows. Well, you said you, you like to be up when no one else is up, but also I'm assuming because you're taking care of animals, that's kind of a motivation too, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like to be outside and playing in the dirt with the animals. (laughs) That is really cool. I mean, when I was, when I was doing some research for the podcast, I went to your Purdue page and I kind of saw that on the bottom there. Um, You're, you're involved in all these activities and and you're uh, a farmer as well. I mean, do you find when you're doing farming, is it an escape or is it one of those things where, you know, some academics like to take walks to try to get their, their mind around stuff, Which, which is it for you? It's definitely stress relief and, you know, just good work-life balance and mental health, um, self-care, mm. but it's also something fun that, you know, my spouse and I enjoy doing together. I think, especially we're empty nesters, you know, as you, you get later in life and you need, you need joint activities and <laughs> this has become one of those things for us. 
I see. So what's your, what's your, before we get into your background, I'm just kind of curious what your schedule's like. Um, I looked at your CV. Um, very, very, very impressive. You've, you've done so much. You got a lot going on. Um, are you one of those people that, that likes to write a lot at certain times of the year or you're a consistent writer? How do you organize your, your writing and research time? I do love to write and it's sort of lowest on my priority list and because I'm, I'm a manager, you know, and um, I don't even teach that much anymore. I guess lecture quite a bit and I teach maybe one class a year. Wow. Um, but, but writing um, is, is my, uh, my fun thing that I try to fit in whenever I can. And um, I, I have so much else going on in terms of programs that we do and, and things that I'm trying to support because our mission really is to embed intercultural learning across the entire Purdue community. And that, that takes mm. a lot of work. We're, you know, we, we do a lot of faculty development and a lot of curriculum development. And um, so, so that's the main mission. But we also try to promote as much cutting edge scholarship as possible. And so I do write, um, I, I probably publish three or four papers a year still. And most of that is in teams. I really enjoy, you know, working with students, working with colleagues and um, participating in, in those group projects because they're, they're enriching, you know, to engage with your colleagues in that way. All right. Well, let, let's back up and then we'll, I want to come back to that, uh, your, your job, because that sounds really interesting. So let, take us back as far as you want to go. I'll kind of hand the floor over to you. How, how did you get that? I want you to take us from as far back as, as you want to go to the time where you started thinking about writing this paper. Sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go. I, I grew up in a military family, so it's always been sort of a, a fascination of mine to, to engage with different cultures around the world and different languages. You know, I learned Korean as a child living in South Korea and wow. um, don't remember much of it now, but, <laughs> but I've always been fascinated by languages and, um, and did an, an undergraduate degree in Spanish. Um, even though at the time I didn't really think I was going to teach, um, but I did end up teaching in, um, in a rural, you know, Georgia high school for several years um, before I went to graduate school. And I really enjoy teaching, you know, I have a sort of teacherly heart to where that's really satisfying to me uh, to be in the classroom of students um, and particularly with languages for students who are very motivated to learn languages because mm. it's so it's so wonderful to to watch people gain these life skills that um, that just dramatically change their lives and their relationships because they have the capacity to interact with the world and with people in ways that they didn't before, you know, mm. so it's, it's very satisfying to me. But um, but eventually I went back to graduate school. I did a master's in linguistics and then a PhD in intercultural communication. And I didn't take the traditional route of getting a tenure track position after, um, after I graduated. And partly that was for uh, economic reasons. I graduated in 2008 and the bottom kind of fell out of the economy, hmm. but, um, but partly it was also for family reasons. We, we wanted to move back to Georgia and, and raise our kids near family. And so, um, so we did that and I ended up going back and, and teaching high school again for several years. And, and at that time, um, I just found myself increasingly depressed, you know, mm -hmm. trying to trying to motivate myself to get out of bed in the morning and and was really trying to to engage in a lot of um, mindfulness and, and self-discovery about what is going on with me and why is this job so hard for me right now? Um, and so that's what that project was born from is an exploration of how, how can I, um, figure out what is impacting me so em at the emotional level so so much with this job right now and what can I do about it 
Now I saw that you're you were a Fulbright Scholar recipient, and you yes. went to Honduras. Where where does that fit into it as well? Yeah, so this was after I was uh, at at Georgia State University. So after I taught in high school for a few years, I I did go back and move into the university system and began teaching at Georgia State University. And um, life was really hectic there. And I, I wanted to, you know, take almost like a sabbatical, you know, so I applied for a Fulbright and went for a year uh, to Honduras. And that was in 2015. So it was before the article came out, but it was after the research had been done. I see. Okay. So you kind of had two tour of duties as a high school language teacher. That's what yes. it sounds like. One, yes. one before your PhD and one after. Correct. Can you compare those two experiences or were they, were they similar? Oh, geez. It's so hard to, to compare. So, you know, the first one, I was a lot younger, first of all, <laughs> <laughs> and very different just sort of personal circumstances, uh, you know, different marriage, different uh, household situation, different stresses um, mm. with young kids and that kind of thing. And, and it was a different school, different community. Um, and I was a first time classroom teacher. So the, the stressors were just completely different. The second time I was a lot more confident and I was a lot more accomplished um, and, and sure of myself, but also had a lot more frameworks to apply to my experience. And so mm-hmm. I was understanding it in different ways and maybe more self-aware. Yeah, I, I kind of get got that vibe reading the paper that you knew exactly what you were doing. As far as putting it all, the mechanisms of how to put it all together in, in a really coherent way, but also a very solid way. Um, now as now I want to get into some story behind the paper a bit, but as you were writing the paper, because here's the thing, when you read a great paper, it's really hard to tell how difficult it was for the writer. Was it one (laughs) of those things? Cause we all have different, we all have. I don't want to say what's your favorite paper. It's like comparing your children, right? But um, (laughs) was this one of those papers that was tough or was it one of those papers that kind of just, I don't know, because there's so many aspects of of things going into a paper as well, right? You have the data collection and there could be troubles with that. But just as far as once the data collection is is done, was it one of those papers that was tough to put together or did it kind of, was it easier? I think it was easier. And I, I tell you, I do have some favorite papers, um, and they are the ones that are more personally meaningful to me, the ones that really grew out of my life circumstances and then had an impact on on how on my daily life and how I interact with other people. And and this is one of those. Um, you know, there's a handful of them that are that way, and then and there's a whole bunch that are just more scholarly in nature and I don't necessarily feel that personal connection to. But this is definitely one of those that um, came directly from what I was experiencing at the time and helped me to understand um, what my life was like and why it was that way, and then gave me some tools to um, to deal with that. So it, it is kind of one of my favorites. <laughs> well, before we get into the paper, I just wanted to kind of give you some context of how I came across this paper. So I, I've just started my PhD in I'm I'm kind of similar to you where I'm I'm researching something that's like personal to me. Um because mm-hmm. I I go I go through ups and downs as a foreign teacher in Japan for different reasons. And I'm kind of researching teacher well-being and and the thing that I'm focusing on is the effect of silence on right. on teachers. And I actually looked at your CV. It seems like you did some research on silence as well. Yes, a lot of my early work was on science. My dissertation was on silence, specifically in the context of addiction. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So I've, I've done a lot of work on silence and, um, and some of actually some of the literature reviews that I pulled together might be useful to you. They're a little outdated now, but they'll give you some of the foundational early, early research. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I'm, I'm really interested in this topic and it's a little, I mean, there's, there's similarities and there's differences. Um, but the thing about the paper that really struck me, which is something that didn't really click for me prior to this, which is surprising, is this idea that as as linguists or anyone who researches language, you're going to come across motivation theory. It's such a huge mm-hmm. part of the field. Sure. It's just a monster, monster field. So student perspectives on language learning, language development, language continuums over time, right? Um, all of All of these things. And then you start talking in the paper about how teachers are faced with these students who are unmotivated. And there's, there's this desire to get them to now for, for, for me personally, it's a lot easier. Like you said, if you're, if you're teaching students that are motivated, if you have this thing, no one wants to stand in front of a group of people, like you're at the DMV or something, um, or you're, you're teaching a driving class or you're teaching some class that was uh, man- mandatory because you got in trouble with the police or something. You know what I mean? Like right, you don't right. want, and then you start talking about this pressure to motivate, this pressure to motivate. And then you, you, you tied it to theory. You said, well, like, look, um, there's all this research that says motivation is second to aptitude as far as determining the ability of a language learner. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes it, it was just one of those aha moments. Um, is that something that you kind of thought about as you were doing the paper? Because I feel like teachers who aren't necessarily academics, that's not something you need to be an academic to understand. Now, you know, right. But then once yeah. you get into the theory, then it kind of, uh, anyway, sorry, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, no, I, I think from a gut level, I had always understood, you know, from my early days before graduate school of, of teaching high school languages in, in the rural South, you know, in these, in these counties where kids, even though they were 20 minutes from the Alabama border, had never been across the state line and, and, and just really, uh, you know, didn't have the resources to get outside of their local community or even really the the impetus, the the motivation to do that. And so then the motivation to learn another language uh, is impacted by that that sort of insularity and lack of uh, understanding or or attention to the larger world, you know, beyond beyond the local. So I had always known from that experience of of teaching in that context that that motivation is really key to the language learning process, just at that gut level without having studied any theory at all. And I think that's probably common amongst teachers. We know when students are not engaged and how that impacts what they are and are not learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other funny thing about reading this paper is I found there was a lot of similarities between myself as a foreign language teacher in Japan and some of the participants and it sounded like you were at similar in, in the rural South, um, beyond the fact that, okay, I feel like there, from reading the paper, there is much more isolation. I feel like there is, I'm lucky enough in the city I'm living, there's a strong group of expats and we kind of stick together Mm -hmm. now without that, it'd be, it'd be much harder. We can get into that aspect, but the idea that Japan seems to be becoming more insular as the years going by. And Mm -hmm. so it's even hard for me to justify now, a lot of these, these classes I'm teaching, they're compulsory requirements. The university feels this is important for you to be a global citizen. Um, but Japan as a culture is, is is kind of shying away from that. They're, they're moving back 
inside, there's less people doing study abroad. This was even before um, COVID. Uh, right. the, the, the English proficiency rates are steadily dropping every single year. Um, you, you ask a, a student in the beginning of the year, you know, can you imagine yourself learning English? And a lot of them say no, at least at the school that I'm at. They say, look, we're going to get a job at a company and we're just going to be there. And then it's almost like there's this identity thing with, with some Japanese people that says, like, I'm not learning English because I'm Japanese. Like, I don't need to, I don't learn. It's the, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I'm aware of, of what you're talking about in the paper uh, as an American, like this idea that, well, I don't need to travel. I know everything's here in America. I don't need to learn a different language. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel it here in Japan as well. There's a lot of these students that are very comfortable saying, I don't ever need to leave Japan. I don't need to, I don't need to learn English. It's not important for me. Now, of course, that's not everyone. Um, but people, the people listening might be surprised to hear that, that that's happening in other countries as well. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of qualitative research. I mean, some people might look at this article and be like, oh, wow, she just talked to five people. You know, who cares? Because, because it's not this big, you know, meta-analysis, the big data approach. Um, but the beauty of qualitative research is that you do get a real glimpse of, of authentic life experience that then can speak to very different circumstances. And, and no, it does not apply to everybody. And it's not generalizable to like to the entire human population. Of course, it's five people in a very specific context. However, what you're saying demonstrates, and I have heard this over and over, that there are resonances between that description of that specific context and other situations and other scenarios and other communities around the world that provide insight and some transfer of knowledge. Um, and, and so again, that's, that's just something that I do qualitative research primarily because I enjoy it and it answers the questions that I'm interested in. Mm. Um, I also do quantitative research too when the, when the questions call for that. But, but I, I really feel like that that is um, an advantage and a benefit of the qualitative approach. And I'm going to be doing something similar, actually a smaller sample size. It's going to be three people, mm -hmm. and it's going to be an ethnographic investigation. A um, little, little bit of a different um, methodology, but reading this paper, I, I did get that sense. You know, this you really got this rich, nuanced data set. Uh, the story was very clear. And again, from, from your aims and from your question, everything just just followed so so easily. Again, it's a it's it's a really great paper. I think I think I think you should be I think you should be proud of it. Um, and the other, I mean, the sad thing about the paper is that uh, you, you said that two of the five participants ended up leaving the profession. Right. And that was just at the time of the paper writing. I bet if I went back to that school now, um, I doubt if any of them would, would still be there because turnover is just really high in foreign language teaching at the, at the, um, you know, public school setting. And, uh, I think that the average, last time I looked at the, the average length of a foreign language teacher was, you know, three or four years or something like that, which means a lot of people teach one year and then quit <laughs> to, to, in the, to average out the people on the opposite end of the spectrum who are there for a lifetime. All right. So once you started analyzing your data and the themes started to emerge, mm -hmm. when did you notice that there was this connection as far as the downward spiral, because currently I'm doing a data analysis and themes are emerging. And there's some connections between the two, but I would say for the most part with the research I'm doing now, they're not, they're not connecting like, like yours did. Is it one of those things where you just started noticing that one was playing off the other? And is this, 
is this unusual for your research? Because I've never had something like this happen to me with, with your paper. Yeah, so I, when you do a grounded theory kind of project that's, that's um, qualitative in nature like this, it's very different from like writing a paper where you write your literature review and you have hypotheses and then you go into it sort of knowing what you're looking for. Mm. This is a, an examination of real life circumstances and then trying to find theories out there that help you explain what's happening. Mm. And sometimes you have to develop some additional theory along the way, building on what's been done before in order to try to explain those, those um, phenomena. So, so that's kind of what's happening here is that when we l took a look at the data itself and we're, we're trying to figure out what is really going on here and then looking around at scholarship to think what could possibly explain what we're seeing here. And then when it doesn't fully explain it, how can we continue to develop that theory so that it really does give us some insights into, um, you know, how people interact with each other and the, the stuff that's going on inside people. Um, so I think that's a, a fair description of what was happening there. Yeah. I mean, um, so it start. let's just go through your, your findings. So it starts with the idea of lack of support. Right. That's, that's, right. that's the top of, uh, of the spiral. Now that could be, now, as you talk about in the paper, um, so, well, something I was thinking of first, even before you were giving the examples is, you know, how many foreign teachers are at each school? Are they, you know, you think of a math department or a science department, there's probably more than one teacher, but then there's specialty teachers. Like, like, for example, at my high school, there was one band teacher, right? Like, is there one Spanish teacher? One journey, you know, it, was that the case as well? Where it's a, these are sort of specialists where they don't have a big community at the particular school they're at, or were they yeah, all at the same school? It, it depends. These five were all at the same school, and it, it really depends on the size of the school, so uh, and the demand at that particular school. You know, if you have a lot of students who are not college track, but um, you know, preparing for technical school, school or careers you may not have as many foreign language teachers for the same amount of kids as you would at another school that nearly everybody is doing those college prep requirements that demand that they take foreign language. So it depends on the size of the school, but also the, the context and, and who the students are and what they're studying. But you would often, I think, in a public school, see a fairly small foreign language department compared to, say, English or math or social studies or something like that, just because of the percentage of students who don't ever take a foreign language. Um, for a lot of, of students, it's, it's considered optional or a requirement that, you know, they have to do but are not very invested in. <laughs> and so that's where the lack of institutional support comes in, not only from um, the students who are feeling that lack of motivation, but because the entire community feels that way, and that's what's shaping the students' attitudes towards the study of, of other languages um, beyond English. The, the administrators in the school, their parents, the school board, you know, the entire community, it's, it sort of feels like these participants kind of described it as swimming upstream or, you know, being, being the only fighters in the game, you know, <laughs> who are pushing for the value of languages and understanding how important it is and, and trying to um, get people on board with, hey, let's do this thing. And that's where that disproportionate burden for motivation comes in because they're the ones carrying that load. Did you end up asking them about the relationship 
because they taught at the same school, the relationship with each other, were they able to, to, to build support or community? Were they able to vent to each other? Was it, was there any sort of, cause I don't remember that popping up in the paper. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were all on good terms with each other. Um, I think anytime you have a small department, well, it depends on personalities and whether or not people get along, but, but often when you have a small department like that, you, um, you may have closer relationships just because you're, you're sort of isolated or, um, you know, you're, you're the only ones. <laughs> so, uh, so there was support happening and, and actually that's a counter, um, you know, method or, or strategy to burnout is to have some peer support. Um, and it, it works even better when it's institutionalized. We're kind of getting ahead of the game and talking about the, the end, uh, result here of, of what's the outcome of all this and what do you do about it? But, but community is, is absolutely a, um, a productive and effective means of coping with the demands of emotional labor. But what you're saying in, I guess, in the paper is that the institutional lack of support trumped any sort of um, cohesive unit those teachers had together as far as support, the pressure of that. Right, because it was the top down. It was the mm. message from administration of you're not really that important, and um, you know we know that the the kids don't really want to learn this, and we have to do it because. But we don't, you know, it's it's that it's that message um, coming from administration, but also coming from parents. And you know, when you sit in a teacher parent meeting, and the parents are like, well. Um, you know, I, I'm fine with them just passing this class because they're never going to use it. And as long as it doesn't drag their GPA down too bad, you know, I, it's cool if they just get a C. How many, how many <laughs> of the participants were, were native uh, speakers of a foreign language? So there was just one section a year uh, for heritage speakers and, and Spanish was the only language that had heritage speakers. Um, so French and Spanish and Latin were all taught at the school. There was one section of Latin, maybe two of French, and then the vast majority were Spanish. And one of those was a, a heritage speaker class. And they were probably only from memory, maybe 15 or so heritage speakers in that class. Yeah, because one of the themes that, that came up well, I don't know if it was a theme that came up in the in the findings. It might it might have. I don't I don't think it was a major theme, but it's something that I've been researching as well. That you, know, you asked that question why why is it harder for foreign language teachers sometimes? And one of the answers is that you're inextricably linked to your culture, right? So it's it's hard to separate personality from culture, identity from culture. So when there's re this rejection of language it can be a personal burn, right? If you're, if you're a math teacher, yeah, you could take it personally, like, Hey, I love math. Why don't you love math? But it's not as, I don't know. There could be other math teachers out there shaking their fists as I'm saying this, but that's one of the questions. That's one of the answers that comes up in the literature, right? So right. people feel that, okay, this, this unmotivated to do not only unmotivated, uh, some of the comments in the paper, you know, this is, like you said, this is, uh, this is, pretty much worthless. I'm not going to use it. I just need to get the passing grade. Um, some of, some of the things that were offending the teachers, this, you, you had a nice table of, well, it's not nice. I mean, I mean, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the right <laughs> word, actually. Uh, effective, <laughs> effective table in the paper where you're talking about direct and indirect behaviors. Right. Um, and one of the ones that stuck out to me there, uh, the pseudonyms, uh, Carissa, 
uh, they just scrape by in my class when they're A students elsewhere. That's a huge sign, right? right. Um, and they try to do classwork for other classes in your class, you know, which is a clear message that other things are more important. I've had that before uh, when I'm teaching these art students and I know they just need to take English, right? And, and I'm trying to incorporate art into the English lesson as much as I can, but hey, don't do, don't do your artwork in my class. Like that's a huge insult. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And coming back to what you were saying about identity, especially for people who are teaching their native language, um, you know, maybe it's different for people who study that language as a non-native speaker and then they, they fell in love with it and they're teaching it. Mm. Um, although I can understand how that would be part of their identity as well. But I think particularly for people who are, are teaching their native language to people who are learning it as a, as a foreign or a non-native language. And if people don't want to learn it, and especially if they're making, you know, prejudiced remarks about the people who speak that language, it's oh. a real blow to your sense of self as a speaker of that language. All right. So maybe that's a good transition to the emotional labor, right? So, all right. So we, we start out with lack of institutional support where, you even have your participants calling the parents and really not getting any help <laughs> from the parents because people, a lot of people that do master's degrees in education, whether it be language or anything else, that's a huge theme that comes up. Involve, involve the family, involve the sure. community, you know? Sure. And so it sounds like these teachers were trying to do that. Like I need, I need to reach out to this, uh, this student. I need, I need the help of their family. Nope. Mm -hmm. Not getting it. They did not get that support from the family, right? So, okay. So like you said, it's back on you. Institution says it's back on you. Parents say it's back on you. So then you get into um, great literature review on emotional labor. For people that don't know, there's three main concepts that you, you talk about in the paper. One is this idea of surface acting, um, mm -hmm. deep acting, and then emotional consonance which I right. had never heard of before. Do you mind uh, breaking down some of those definitions for people that aren't familiar with the terms? Yeah, so emotion labor research, and some people call it emotional labor, some people call it emotion labor, and there's different spellings because of the American-British thing going on there. So, <laughs> so if you're looking that up, there's both of those are kind of the same thing. Um, but the, it came from kind of a feminist push of, look what's happening with women in careers. Um, and women and men have different, um, expectations placed on them for engaging emotionally with other people in, in workspaces. And in, in some careers in particular, um, women are expected to do the work. They're drawn to those careers or they're encouraged to do those careers because they are more emotionally demanding or engaging. So if you think about like childcare type spaces or nursing, you know, type spaces, um, where, where the ratio of women to men may be different from the rest of the working world. Um, but even in male-dominated spaces, the expectations that women will do emotional work um, and the, the lack of reward or compensation for that work was what was the, the impetus for the, the beginnings of emotional labor research. And it had been applied some to teaching because in a lot of places, teaching is a female-dominated career, but it really hadn't been applied to foreign language teaching in particular. and. Um, and so when I started to look at those three pieces of emotion labor, I found that 
from what the participants in the study were saying, they truly were applicable and, and really explaining some things that were, were happening. So the three pieces are the surface acting. The surface acting is when you, you actually don't feel something and you're pretending that you do, or you are, are feeling something and you're pretending that you're not. Mm. So it's a real disconnect between your real emotional state and your portrayed emotional state. And in, in long-term contexts, that's the most dangerous, the most risky, the most draining, the most uh, damaging to, you know, your self-care and, and also to your relationships because it's inauthentic. Yeah. I, um, I don't want to say I was surprised by that, but because my personality, I do not do that. And, so, and, <laughs> and, and my wife always jokes, she's like, you're never going to get cancer. Uh, but I'm going to offend people sometimes. That's for sure. Like I do not do that. Like that, that there was a couple of anecdotes in the paper where really they they were just kind of saying, you know, not to use the, the, the mixed martial arts metaphor. Like there's this, there's this metaphor in mixed martial arts where they just say something's not going well in the fight. You just bite down on your mouthpiece and start, you know, start swinging. Right. So now the, the person didn't start swinging, but they bit down on their mouthpiece kind of thing. And they just, you know, there was these comments, these rude comments, bad behavior going on. And they just took a second. They said, look, I can let kind of sh- let them see that this affects me or I'm going to go in a different way. Now, I actually think the strategy was good, especially with like high school students. It's like if you show weakness, you know, you lose kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's where the emotional labor comes in. Like you, if you're looking at it like a video game, that's where energy is coming off your health. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but so the, I, 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 I guess, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, we never uh, covered the other two. So I just want to, before we get too far away, I want to go over deep acting and then the emotional consonants, just so folks have an overview of the whole, you know, trilogy there. Yeah. Um, so the deep acting, um, it, it's where you are, um, trying to generate feelings. So you do end up actually feeling authentic feelings, but you have to work at it. So you're, you're sort of dragging yourself along with intentionality towards an emotional state. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, some people call it like fake it till you make it, or <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there's other phrases for that kind of thing, but um, it's not authentic, but it, it takes a lot of effort. That's the, the way I like to phrase it. And then emotional consonance is, is this sort of very natural process that people have where you connect with other people and there's a lot of empathy happening. And that's the kind of emotional labor that, that is very rewarding and actually refills your cup and um, is, is why a lot of people find satisfaction in highly emotional careers over time uh, does not really cause burnout, that emotional consciousness piece, but it's a lot more rare in my experience. Yeah. I, I, I've never, I've never encountered that before with myself. That seems odd to me. I mean, I guess I can see how it can work, but it's really hard for me to imagine. I mean, doing a lot of the research yeah. on emotion labor or emotional labor, you you see a lot of the context where it's been studied, right? Um, right. People that work in customer customer driven industries, right? Like people that work in an airline or mm-hmm. um, customer support, or you, you even had adventure tour leaders. Right. <laughs> What's the emotional labor and adventure tour leaders? Because like this person doesn't up- want to climb the mountain or something. What's going on well, with that? You always have to be upbeat and excited, okay. and, right? You can't ever have a bad day if if you're providing an adventure for other people and responsible for them having a great vacation, right? 
I was surprised by that one. I, I thought, wow, this was a very comprehensive review. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, another another quick question. Um, so in the paper, you talked about uh, you kept referring to this paper by Yin et al. 2013. I don't, I don't know the name of the paper, but one of the findings from that paper was higher emotional intelligence. People with higher emotional intelligence are more likely to successfully use emotional labor strategies. Um, do you agree with that? Well, I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? That if you if you are emotionally intelligent, which includes a lot of things, it includes awareness of your own emotions, it includes awareness of other people's emotions, it includes the capacity to manage your own emotions successfully. So just by the basic definition of emotional intelligence, it would make sense that people who are more emotionally intelligent would employ more intentional strategies for emotion labor that that would be more successful. I hope that's true because I'm studying this a lot and I still find I lose my emotion sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I, so I don't know. It's, and the other thing, sometimes I think if you're studying emotions or you're aware of it, sometimes you're more sensitive than other people might and not pick, you know what I mean? I, I feel like it could be, go both ways. I'm yeah. not entirely convinced about, about that. I do well, say like if someone doesn't know anything about it and they're just constantly, getting in these conflicts and they don't know what's wrong. I can see that, but right. I don't know if I totally agree with that, that, that fine. Well, I, th I thought the interesting thing about that in article was, was not so much the relationship between emotional intelligence and emotion labor strategies, which I thought kind of made sense and was intuitive, but then the, the, the next leap, which was the connection between those and teaching satisfaction where teachers who were more emotionally intelligent and were, engaging in more intentional emotional labor strategies were more satisfied with their jobs and thus probably taught longer. Mm. Okay. All right. So let's, let's go, go back to the spiral, right? Okay. So lack of institutional support. And then we have uh, facing students that are unmotivated and then they're facing those behaviors. And that's when the emotional labor starts to kick in. Right. And then the labor, the I know, energy gets depleted and then is that when teachers start feeling inadequacies with self-efficacy? Is that where that comes in? Right. So let's let's take this to really a concrete space. So a couple of different scenarios. Let's say that you've got really you know demotivated students and you're in there trying to entertain them and you're trying to be really upbeat and engage them and you're doing it by putting on a, a dog and pony show in front of the classroom and you know trying every which way you can think of through your own energy and enthusiasm to infect them with, um, you know, a, a modicum of, <laughs> of motivation to learn some language, right? So when you see that that is not as effective as you would like it to be, then not only are you exhausted from putting on the show, mm. but you're also discouraged because it was not as successful as you hoped it would be. So then you begin to doubt yourself and your own capacity and the, the value of what you're even doing as an educator. And so that's where the, the downward spiral starts. But it could also happen in the opposite direction. You know, we were talking about sort of these times when you feel um, these blows and these wounds to your identity um, because these students are, are making, you know, because they've been raised in communities where this is just a reality. So they're reflecting that in the classroom, but they're making comments that, you know, about, 
you know, why would I want to learn this language of these people who are invading our country? Or, um, you know, why would I want to um, learn the language of the dirty brown people or whatever, you know, like really mm -hmm. horrible things. Um, and, and so hiding how much that hurts and um, doing this kind of surface acting that um, pretends that all is well when all is not well, that's also exhausting. And, and again, you see the, the discouragement of, um, you know, what am I even doing here? And, and am I having any positive impact on these students, on the world at large, if I can't even fight these, you know, these prejudices that people have and, and these, um, you know, misunderstandings of, of other people that are so tragic and have such awful material consequences or other people, you know, on that point with the dog and pony show, I, I was reading, um, there, there's a scholar, uh, Sam Morris. He actually came on the podcast a, a few months ago and, and he just finished his PhD and mm -hmm. he was doing a lot of research on emotion regulation, um, sure. with, with teachers in Japan. And one of the things that he brought up in his research was there's this expectation in Japan that foreign English teachers should put on this more, like you said, this carnival-like personality. There's almost this expectation, something I hadn't really thought of before. And it's 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 one of those things when you you walk through the hallways of a Japanese university, a lot of those classes, um, lecture based. Some of them some of them aren't, but you can tell there's a different sort of vibe. Like it doesn't look like the teachers care if the students are just conked out on their desks, like asleep looking at their phone. It doesn't look like it bothers them. Now I've mm -hmm. talked to a few of them and they say it really doesn't. I, I know that I don't know if that's true or not, but then from our perspective, yeah, I do see some teachers like really going over the top to try to get those students. Now I don't do that. Like I start off very low expectations very, very low. Like I'm almost like a corpse in the beginning and then I can gradually get some energy. And I feel, I feel like that works better. Um, cause I'm afraid of the other way. If you start out that way where you're this, then they expect you to be like that all the time. Mm -hmm. And even if you are like that all the time, it's not going to work like patterns. You know, people will get grow tired of a pattern if it's the same, no matter what pattern it is, I think. Right. Um, so anyway, I do, I do find that is a, is a dangerous thing. I see teachers doing that. I said, how can they keep this up? Like you said, there's, there's just the energy to do it, mm -hmm. right? I mean, unless that's your natural character, then I, I don't know. I, I could see how that, how did you, what, 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 what was your personality in the classroom? Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm introverted and I, I got to the point sometimes in teaching high school where I just was looking for a place to escape. I would, I would like, you know, run in the restroom and just to be in the stall for a second, separated mm. from the rest of the room, you know, over the rest of the, the world outside. Because as a, as a public school teacher, you just get no, you're on hall duty, you're on parking lot duty, you're on lunch duty. You, you just, you have no second to yourself throughout the day. And so it was really hard for me to, to do the dog and pony show. It was, it was one of those things where I turned a switch and, when I got in front of the room, I was suddenly this vivacious, you know, upbeat, extroverted, you know, just very energetic and enthusiastic person that is not me. You know, in real life, I'm very even keeled and calm and peaceful, tranquil personality. But but as a language teacher, I didn't feel like I could get away with that. Um, 
And so I really resonated with um, some of the comments that the teachers made in the study because they um, they did some of the same things of that surface acting of just pretending to feel those feelings that they weren't actually feeling for the sake of the students to try to drag them along into the learning process. And I, I just want to repeat what you said before that the concept where you something bothers you and you act like it doesn't is more draining mm -hmm. than the surface acting. I think people should, should, should remember that. That's a, that, that's, that's a really interesting point. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the guilt now. So then you had this um, anecdote in the paper where one of the teachers was totally exhausted and mm -hmm. she said, I, I just going to put on a French movie because I need to rest and um, I'm not getting any, I, was just, I, mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I'm just, probably I'm not getting anything from these students. The students don't want to be here. I'm mm -hmm. exhausted. I'm not going to bang my head against the wall. I'm just going to throw on a movie. They don't care anyway if right. I'm trying my best um, and they're going to watch a movie in French. They might even be happier. So let's just do that. And it works. Right. And then because you can rest, but then you get that guilt where, yeah. you know, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have shown them that movie. Um, all right. So talk about that for a little bit. And then, um, I actually have a personal, I, I can kind of apply some of my own experiences to that as well. Sure. Yeah. I think this is where we see the downward spiral and it, and it doesn't affect everybody, you know, this downward spiral, um, not every teacher who's in these circumstances will feel this because everybody deals with emotion labor in different ways. And some people feel the pressure in different ways. And some people respond to that pressure in different ways. Um, and then other people have different resources to apply to the emotion labor. So won't get burnt out as easily, but the spiral that, that sort of appeared as a theme in this study was that the more people felt the pressure to do the emotion labor, to motivate their students, the more they became exhausted. And then when they got exhausted, they felt like they were not effective. So they had that lack of self-efficacy. And the more they felt the lack of self-efficacy and the exhaustion, the more they actually didn't do as good a job as they could have done um, because those two things were um, negatively impacting their, their own capacity. And then, of course, that turned right back around and impacted their sense of, you know, inefficacy and made them even more exhausted. So it was this um, mutually reinforcing in a bad way mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sort of set of, of circumstances and reactions to circumstances that fed each other continually in this, in this downward spiral until the point where people just couldn't function anymore and they stopped teaching. Um, and so that's where you then get the job burnout and the, the teacher attrition happening at the end of the downward spiral. If it's not corrected, if it's not um, either downward motion stopped or downward motion reversed, you know, that's what it seems to end in for a lot of people is the burnout and then leaving the teaching profession. And this is the part of the paper that I, I'm most fascinated with now at, at personally as a teacher and also as a researcher, because from the outside looking into this paper, you say, okay, they, if you're going to, if you're going to take the video game analogy, their energy level, their health level is too low. Mm -hmm. Like you, you should, something needs to be done before you get into the red, right? That's, right. that's kind of the danger zone, right? So there's a couple things you could do. You could, you now, even beyond the, the emotion, the surface acting, the deep acting, let's just talk about the strategy of, of showing the movie, right? 
So that's mm -hmm. kind of removing yourself from the situation or creating distance or not trying your best like or uh, not putting as many hours into a lesson. That came up in the paper as well. Um, mm -hmm. Why am I spending three hours on this lesson and it's not working? Right. Oh, am I a bad teacher? Right. These, these, these sorts of thoughts. So I kind of, so I'm kind of researching silence, right? And sometimes it's really hard to get students to talk and they just don't want to talk and bad things can happen if you go about it the wrong way. And it takes a lot of effort. So mm -hmm. sometimes the, the thing that I've been kind of researching now is this idea of like this attractor state where the student silence almost drags the teacher to be more silent or to do less speaking activities because that's mm -hmm. what they prefer. And then it's harder to make them speak or to get them to speak on their own. So then you sort of concede to the silence, right? And you say, all right, well, we're just going to come to this mutual understanding where this is what we're going to do. And what that does is, uh, from my perspective, is it does protect your resources. Like you, you, you can get through the day. You're not exhausted at the end of the day. But at the end of the week, so if I was a participant in this study, I think I would be have a little bit of a different data. I would be the participant that protected my resources, mm -hmm. felt the guilt, but didn't. It wasn't enough where I would quit, right? Be but right. because my I wasn't tired enough. But the guilt does come where you say like not only not only guilt, but like the identity. Like what am I doing here? I thought my mm -hmm. job was to help them speak. I'm not helping them the way I I know I should help them, and the way I should help them is I should I should go through some of these conflicts and get them to speak more. I need to get them, but they don't care. They I don't know. They really don't want to do it. And, you know, this, so that's the thing that I struggle with sometimes is like the identity. Like, what am I doing here? Like, mm -hmm. it's not, they're not reaching the goals, but do you see what I mean? Like that's, that, yeah. that, that zone is, is an interesting state uh, from my perspective. Yeah, and, and what you're talking about is, I think, in some ways, context-dependent. It's really interesting. It's it's one of the differences between where you're at in, in your teaching context and the context of the study, because what you're describing to me, at least based on my experience, is kind of a tension or push and pull between your perceptions of why you were hired in the first place and what the expectations are of the institution and of the community of, you're the native speaker in here providing them with an opportunity to speak more, right? Mm. Whereas if they, had a, if they had a Japanese teacher, maybe the expectation were, well, they're learning about the language, you know, they're learning the grammar, they're building up vocabulary, but but we got to get this native speaker in here so they can really learn to talk, right? Mm -hmm. And and so there's that expectation, but then countered by the student's hesitance to talk, whether that's out of disinterest or language anxiety or, you know, a number of other potential factors, um, the desire to to get it right before they actually open their mouths, you know, that's sort of that um, perfectionism. There's lots of things that could be influencing, but but you've got that silence. And so that silence lives somewhere between those, you know, opposite ends that are in tension with each other there. Yeah, there's um, so I did a kind of a pilot study where an autoethnographic event based sampling study where I just tracked my emotional reactions to silence over the course of a term. Mm hmm. And what I found was most of them were in the beginning or the end of the term, which kind of led me to believe that that there was this sort of attractor state that that came where we all kind of came to an agreement upon how the class was going to go. But there was this one event. It was the day after I came back from a conference. And so this was a really interesting uh, finding that I had is that I, I went to this conference and I got all motivated 
and I saw all these great presentations. I got really excited. I was like, oh man, I'm going to do this, this. I jumped back into class the next day. I'm trying all this stuff, getting nothing, <laughs> nothing. Right. So I had gone away and I had gotten, you know, reborn as a teacher and I had gotten all excited. I come back in the class like, yeah, let's do this. And I had forgotten that they didn't go, you know, and they're kind of looking at me like, hey, man, I thought we agreed we're not going to do this. Right. What happened? Right. And so that was a kind of a funny. Not, I mean, it was an interesting finding where not just negative things can in interfere with positive things can too. Right. right. I, it was it was kind of funny. Like I had broken up the pattern of the state that we kind of had agreed to. Now I'm not saying mm -hmm. that I did no speaking activities, but it was like, I, we, we got, we got to this point where there was an acceptable amount of, you know, this is what we're going to do here. Right. Um, so I thought that was really funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you've gotten some strategies to deal with the, the emotional labor demands of, of your work. And some of the teachers in the study did as well. You know, they, they came to the conclusion that if I do this, it's not as bad. And if I, if I do this, I can cope in this way. And so some of the most common strategies, both from this paper, but, but from other experiences that I've had were things like, um, just becoming really realistic and accepting of the context and saying, you know, I'm one person in this context. I, I can't, I can't fight the battle alone. So, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can. And, and not not take on that burden completely by myself, but just be more realistic about what I can accomplish and not set my expectations so high for myself. And other people would be like, I'm gonna pick the the few students who are motivated and really pour myself into those. And if these other students just want to pass, I'm just gonna let them. <laughs> you know, they'll get their C uh, and you know, I'll grade their papers. But man, where my heart is is gonna be these few students who really do want to learn, and I'll make sure that they go out my door really competent in this language. Man, I wish I could do that. I struggle with that so much. I'll, I'll come home after the a day of teaching, and I'm just so focused on the students that bother me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why can't I pay attention to the ones? And then you you read this paper and you, you cite the negativity bias. It's like, oh, there it is. Mm -hmm. Human psychology. That's a hard, I don't know. Is it, can you get over that? That's a tough one. You know, that, that negativity bias. I think so. Um, I don't remember if it's in this paper or not, but I do remember in one of these interviews, one of them was talking about the highlight of the day being like the Spanish three class. And so these were the students who went above and beyond, you know, they did their requirements of the two years and now they actually are moving forward voluntarily and signing up because they liked her as a teacher and they liked the subject and they felt like this was worth learning. It was an elective for them, you know, and, and I think that probably happens in, in any required subject. So you've got maybe an art teacher and that first year art class is everybody who just needed an elective or that spot was open in their day or their parents wanted them to take art or they're just feeling it out to see if they're any good at it and they're really not. You know, those, those students are in your first level art class. But the students who go on and do a second or a third year of art are the ones who are really passionate about it. And those are the ones that are a joy to teach. So I think no matter what subject you're teaching, that can be probably a uh, a strategy for you to save your passion, uh, or at least, you know, the finding that emotional confidence, the, the piece that's rewarding and keeps sustaining you. 
that that can happen with the students who are going above and beyond those select few who are naturally motivated and you didn't have to drag kicking and screaming <laughs> into the learning process, but who are giving back to you as a teacher instead of you just always giving, giving, giving as the teacher. All right. I got a couple more questions for you. Um, but again, the paper is the burnout spiral, the emotion labor of five rural U.S. foreign language teachers. Um, and this was published in the Modern Language Journal. Can you can you talk a little <laughs> bit about the publication process? Did you did you did you have your eyes set on this particular journal or how, how did it come about to be published here? Yeah, I did. I did from the beginning have this particular journal in mind because it's sort of the flagship journal of MLA, which is the Modern Language Association. And I thought it would be a good venue to get um, this theoretical development out there to language teachers in the United States and beyond. Um, so it has a pretty wide reach and, and a big readership. And so um, yeah, it was it was sort of my my reach journal. You know, sometimes you you send an article to a journal and you're like, I don't know what the odds are, are getting published there, but I'm going to try. And then if it gets rejected, you might send it elsewhere. But uh, but this was the the journal that we intended to write it for, and luckily the reviewers, you know, gave us good feedback, and and we went through um, I think one one major revision and then just some minor edits, copy editing type stuff as a second round, and and then it was published. Were you were you proud of yourself? I was particularly proud of the students who who um, collaborated on this project. I was at Georgia State at the time um, of this publication, and I was working with. I had two student interns, undergraduates. Wow. Who were okay. And so the other two people on this uh, project are both uh, undergraduate students who were working with me at Georgia State at the time, and they were applied linguistics students. So they they both ended up having uh, careers in. Um, you know, teaching English to speakers of other languages, and they were just wonderful. They, it was their first big research project that they had done, and so it was a, a learning curve for them. And they, I just been really proud of the work that they did. That's amazing. Um, do you have any advice for early career researchers? You know, getting started, and as far as far as writing or research, or any mistakes you made along the way, or or anything that kind of sticks out if you were to go back and do it again, or just something that people could reach onto that are struggling with their research or struggling with managing their time or anything? Well, I mentioned earlier that my favorite papers are the ones that were personally impactful to me. And, and when I talk to people who are struggling with research, I will often try to point them in the direction of things that are personally meaningful to them. Because I feel like in the times when we get discouraged as scholars and things are really hard and it's hard to make progress forward on, on our studies that that can sustain us as a motivating factor of if you really care about those results and you think that they're going to positively impact your life, um, then, you know, they can help you get over the hump in, in those projects when you, you reach those sticking points. So, yeah, so I would say don't, don't disconnect yourself and, and sort of get in this ethereal cognitive space in your head of I'm going to study what's just cognitively interesting to me, but go to your heart and think about, you know, what's, what's truly important to me as a person, not just as a scholar. And that's, that's what you should investigate. That's awesome. Let, let's talk about your job a little bit. So can, can you, can you talk us through your position? You said you, you're trying to, you're trying to make intercultural something institution wide. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. 
Yeah, I think I have the best job in the world. So I, I came here from the faculty position at Georgia State. I was kind of burnt out on, on faculty life, especially coming back from Honduras, which I had such wonderful work-life balance during my Fulbright. And I came back and sort of, you know, ran smack up against the faculty rat race again and thought, I, I just don't know if I can do this because it's just never enough. You know, when you're mm-hmm. a faculty member at a university, you could you could work 24-7 and it still wouldn't be enough. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like one of those things you can never, you can always make more money, right? Right. (laughs) You can always publish more papers. Exactly. Exactly. There's that pressure. So, uh, so I was looking around for other options and I found the position at Purdue. I came up here. It's mostly a staff position. I'm, I'm essentially a a manager and a, um, and a strategic, you know, visionary and a um, branding person and a, you know, the, those kinds of activities as much as I am a scholar these days, but um, I, I just think I have a fabulous job. We, we have a center, we have about a dozen people. Um, so it's, it's not like a typical university center. That's like one professor, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we, we actually have a great team and we have a lot of collaborators across the university, but we are tasked with, um, intercultural learning defined very broadly. So it's connected in some ways to diversity and inclusion efforts, but it's also, um, connected to trying to take, intercultural learning out of just the study abroad context and embed it in classrooms on campus, in virtual programs, you know, in co-curricular life, um, just make learning about and from people who are different from you and developing skills to interact more effectively across those differences, make that a normal part of the university culture. So that's very different from your typical university yeah. you know, international center. That's really all about moving people from one place to another. And I think we have a unique vision and I'm, I'm just so excited about having the resources to accomplish that. How's it going that, so far? It's fabulous. I, I think we're not only making a huge impact on campus, but we're creating a, a really a lot of scalable resources that are open access. We have um, what's called a science gateway, um, which is a kind of a website on steroids that's open access and user driven. And it's a one-stop shop for interculturalists. So there's tons of resources there. There's, there's a curated toolbox with probably a thousand different activities and assessments and all that kind of stuff. And it's just there for the taking. So I encourage people, if you're at all interested in, um, you know, the, the sort of intercultural skill development area, whether you're a language teacher or in some other field, to go check that out as a resource. It's at uh, hubacle.org, um, intercultural learning hub, hubicl.org. And um, yeah, we hope to see you there. <laughs> that That's amazing. I mean, I was looking at your CV. You got some big grant projects going on. Yeah, we've got several um, federally funded grants. The most recent one is a, is a mentorship program where we're collaborating with Chicago State University, um, which is a minority-serving institution, to um, attract more minoritized students to Purdue as graduate students. Mm. And so we're training mentors here, faculty mentors here at Purdue, to make a more inclusive environment for those students um, and and training those mentors in intercultural skill development. So that's fun. With a grant that big, is there ever the you know, the question, uh, Hey, Dr. Atchison, Claire, I saw you got a new Corvette in the driveway. No, there's indirect costs. So the university takes like half of it right off the top, right. For, for overhead. Okay. But, uh, but even beyond that, I mean, those things are very strictly monitored by the, by the business office. It's all meted out in, you know, 
a thousand dollars here and three hundred dollars here for this and that and and very strict budgets. So, yeah, there's no Corvettes in the in the drive. <laughs> I saw you have three cows this year. I thought you only had one. Um, all right, two more quick questions. I looked on your CV, and it said for your undergraduate, you got a three point nine GPA. Which <laughs> class did you not get an A in? in your Religion. There it is. I'm sure it still sticks with you, doesn't it? Oh man, yep. I got a B on a paper. Oh boy. How was that? Did that did that put you in a downward spiral, or you were okay? Uh, no, I, I got over it. But uh, yeah, that was my. I think it's good not to be perfect. Definitely. <laughs> I think it is good not to be perfect. But I thought I bet she knows which class it was. I bet if I asked Absolutely. her. Um, all right, last thing. You wrote a paper in 2013 called Waffle Booty and Other Tales of Gender and Class in the House. What the heck is that? It's about Waffle House. Oh, so okay. If okay. If you're not from the southern United States, you might not know that Waffle House is a ubiquitous restaurant. Sometimes there'll be two on an interstate exit, not just one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a very, very common um, sort of working class uh, trucks, truck stop type of a, uh, breakfast joint. And, um, uh, yeah, that was an autoethnographic, uh, set of poetry that I wrote and, and published. Um, and it's, it's about gender and class and my own self-discovery of those things within the Waffle House setting. You also wrote a play? Is that, that a, my dissertation? Okay. Yeah. So part of my dissertation, it was also autoethnographic as well as ethnographic. And um, there was a whole chapter of poetry in that dissertation. And towards the end, right before I graduated, towards the end of that final year, um, we turned it into a screenplay and um, performed it in a black box theater with an entire cast of addicts and family members of addicts, which was really, really awesome and really personally impactful. So, wow. Yeah. Wild, wild career here. <laughs> It's just all over the place. That's just the academic. I've had lots of lots of unusual uh, tattoo artists, professional cowgirl, you know, pilots, <laughs> lots of other careers as well. Wow. Well, uh, this is the awkward part of the interview where I tell you to stay on the line, even though I'm saying goodbye. Okay. <laughs> um, but wow, this is a real thrill to to talk to you. And and again, the paper. Let's bring it up here. Uh, the Burnout Spiral, the Emotion Labor of Five Rural U.S. Foreign Language Teachers. Highly recommend it. Amazingly written. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.